This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Due to the graphic nature of this investigation and trial, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of violence that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. It was still raining on the afternoon of March 30, 1981, when President Ronald Reagan left the White House. He was on his way to give a speech at the Washington Hilton Hotel to union members of the AFL-CIO. Around the same time, 25-year-old John Hinckley Jr. arrived outside the Hilton. He was a pudgy young man with sandy blonde hair. He stood waiting behind a rope barrier near the VIP entrance. He carried a 22 caliber revolver and five photos of the young actress Jodie Foster. At 2.25 p.m., President Reagan concluded his speech and exited the Hilton. Reporters greeted him outside with their cameras rolling as the president walked to his limo, only 50 feet away. He was accompanied by White House Press Secretary James Brady, Secret Service agent Timothy McCarthy, and local D.C. police officer Thomas Delahanty. Suddenly, six shots were fired in under two seconds, hitting all four men. Chaos erupted as the crowd screamed. Some fell to the ground in fear or shock. Heads whipped around to find the perpetrator, the man they had just seen holding a gun. A group of Secret Service agents, local police officers, and even a couple of civilians tackled John Hinckley Jr. to the ground, stripping him of his weapon. His crime had been captured by the news cameras for everyone to see. There was no doubt the young, blonde man had fired the shots. But why? Why had this unassuming loner tried to murder the president? How should we determine a person's guilt? Do we defer to the evidence discovered by police or the verdict reached by a jury? And what happens when the evidence and the verdict don't line up? Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and this is Not Guilty, a ParCast original. Each week, we look at complicated criminal cases that test the limits of innocent until proven guilty. 
You can find episodes of Not Guilty and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Not Guilty for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Not Guilty in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. This week, we're looking at one of the most shocking political cases in recent American history, the 1981 attempted assassination of President Ronald Reagan. First, we'll learn more about the perpetrator, John Hinckley Jr., and his disturbing motivations. Next week, we'll follow the case as it goes to trial. We'll see for ourselves how the evidence matches up with the verdict. 35-year-old detective Eddie Myers was in the last hour of his shift on March 30, 1981, when 25-year-old John Hinckley Jr. was brought into the D.C. police station for processing and interrogation. Myers was a 14-year veteran of the Homicide Division. Even though he was still waiting on a casualty report from the hospital, attempted murder still fell under his purview, and therefore... So did Hinckley. He started to collect some basic background on Hinckley, who appeared oddly unemotional, considering he'd just attempted an assassination. Myers saw him smirk a few times as he was booked. When Myers told Hinckley that he had, in fact, shot the president, Hinckley remained completely expressionless. Detective Myers needed to uncover, as quickly as possible, if Hinckley had acted alone or if there was a larger conspiracy afoot and more people were in danger. His suspect was so calm already, Myers decided to do what he could to keep him at ease. He told Hinckley, I want to hear your side of the story. It's okay. You're safe here. At first, Hinckley denied knowing anything about the shooting. But Myers persisted. He tried a different tactic, asking, You must be a Democrat? As Hinckley's stoicism morphed into a huge grin, Myers realized he'd found his way in. He opened his notebook and asked Hinckley to tell him about his upbringing. John Warnock Hinckley Jr. was born on May 29, 1955, in Ardmore, Oklahoma, the youngest of three children in an affluent Christian family. His father, John Sr., or Jack, was a successful businessman in the oil industry, and his homemaker mother, Joanne, doted on him. Hinckley thrived as a child. When he was young, he found an interest in sports, especially basketball and football. When his family moved from Oklahoma to an upscale neighborhood in Texas, he earned the title of best player for his elementary school basketball team. An active student at McCullough Middle School, Hinckley was voted president of his junior high homeroom classes, managed his school's football team, and took up the guitar. But Hinckley, an introvert, lived in the shadows of his older siblings. His brother, Scott, went into the family business as vice president of the Vanderbilt Energy Corporation. 
His sister, Diane, was a cheerleader and a straight-A student. Even Hinckley's father seemed to pay more attention to Scott and Diane. Many of Jack's business acquaintances didn't even realize he had two sons, as they only ever heard of the prodigal Scott Hinckley. When Hinckley reached his teen years, he entered Highland Park High School in Dallas. Hinckley never quite found his own identity or friend group in high school. He continued to be shy and withdrawn. When police spoke to classmates, one described him as a non-guy, another as average. The most common comment regarding Hinckley was that they didn't remember much about him at all. In high school, something started to change for Hinckley. He stopped participating in school activities. He never dated or spent time with friends. He sat alone in his room for hours listening to music, mostly by John Lennon, and practicing the guitar. After Hinckley graduated high school in 1973, he headed to Texas Tech University in Lubbock. Within a month of their last child leaving the nest, Hinckley's parents also moved from their home in Texas to Evergreen, Colorado. And with his only semblance of a normal social life and support system hundreds of miles away, Hinckley grew more isolated. At Texas Tech, 18-year-old Hinckley frequently wrote home and called his mother to talk about the severe depression he was feeling. His time at school predictably didn't last long. He dropped out in the spring of 1976 and moved to California with hopes of becoming a songwriter. In Los Angeles, Hinckley tried to sell his songs and find his John Lennon moment. At one point, he applied to work in a camera store, although he didn't know anything about photography. Mostly, he wrote home asking for money. To satisfy his parents' curiosity, and encourage their generosity, Hinckley invented a girlfriend named Lynn Collins, claiming he met her in a Hollywood laundromat. He told them about the nice restaurants he and Lynn went to and trips they took. Hinckley told his parents she was an aspiring actress and that her family was behind her all the way, hoping it would inspire them to support his dreams. Hinckley also told his parents another, bigger lie, that the United Artists' record label was interested in his music. He described his promising new career, claiming that he was going to earn hundreds of thousands of dollars in royalties, so much money he'd be able to retire to a mansion in Beverly Hills. Then, two weeks later, he wrote that his fortunes had shifted, he claimed that United Artists had put his songs on a waiting list. The money wasn't coming after all. Shortly after, the 21-year-old Hinckley abandoned his L.A. dream. He moved back in with his parents and the family cat, Titter, in Colorado. By now, sister Diane was happily married, and brother Scott had gone off to work at the Vanderbilt Energy Corporation, Portraits of both of them hung in the family home. There were no pictures of John to be found. That same year, Martin Scorsese's Academy Award-nominated film Taxi Driver was released. 
The film, about a mentally unstable man who works as a taxi driver in New York, starred Robert De Niro, Harvey Keitel, Sybil Shepard, and Jodie Foster. In the movie, Travis Bickle, played by De Niro, becomes obsessed with and stalks a presidential candidate and two young women. His obsession turns to violence when he shoots and kills several people, becoming a kind of courageous yet complicated anti-hero of the story. Travis was particularly obsessed with liberating the young Iris, played by a 12-year-old Jodie Foster, from sex work. John Hinckley Jr. reportedly saw the movie 15 times. He began to identify with the depressed loner, Travis Bickle, who he viewed as a hero. Travis Bickle killed a bunch of scumballs who were ruining Iris's life, and Hinckley related to that. He bought a copy of the book the movie was based off of, as well as the soundtrack, which he listened to for hours on end. He began wearing an army fatigue jacket and boots and drinking peach brandy, just like Bickle. He started keeping a diary, like Bickle. Hinckley also started to obsess over the actress who played Iris, Jodie Foster. When Hinckley was processed at the police station, Detective Eddie Myers had discovered several photographs of Jodie Foster on him. He coaxed Hinckley to tell him more about her, but didn't get far. Hinckley simply told him, she's a friend of mine from college. Of course, Detective Myers knew this was a lie. These photographs were cutouts from magazines. It was doubtful they were friends or had even met face to face. Myers probed Hinckley to explain the connection, asking more about his time at Texas Tech and how Hinckley would have crossed paths with Foster. In 1978, 23-year-old Hinckley decided to return to Texas Tech five years after dropping out. He switched his major from business administration to English. He spent the next few years drifting in and out of college without ever acquiring a degree. He seemed to be increasingly more distracted by his fantasies involving the teenage Jodie Foster. Eugene Lawson, a mail carrier who served Hinckley's Lubbock apartment, reported a discussion the two had regarding the general issue of crime in the U.S. Lawson said that Hinckley told him once, if there were more people like the character Robert De Niro played in the movie, there wouldn't be any problem controlling crime. Hinckley felt he had seen the solution to violence in Taxi Driver. More violence. Coming up, Hinckley's obsession with Taxi Driver and Jodie Foster brings him to Yale University and a life-changing decision. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. On March 30th, 1981, 
25-year-old John Hinckley Jr. attempted to assassinate President Ronald Reagan. After he was arrested, Detective Eddie Myers was tasked with questioning Hinckley. He, along with the rest of the country, wanted to know one thing. Why did Hinckley do it? By all accounts, they'd found Hinckley had a fairly normal upbringing. But as they dug deeper into his college years, what they uncovered was unsettling. In 1978, 23-year-old Hinckley was transitioning from a lonely introvert into a disturbing obsessive while still sporadically attending classes at Texas Tech. And it was this year that Hinckley's violent tendencies began to emerge. Although Hinckley himself had never been in so much as a fistfight, his obsession with the movie Taxi Driver led him to start empathizing with desperate men with violent pasts. Eventually, this interest led Hinckley to seek out the National Socialist Party of America, the American Nazis. In March of 1978, Hinckley traveled to St. Louis, Missouri, for a rally commemorating the 60th anniversary of George Lincoln Rockwell Jr.'s birth, the slain former leader of the National Socialist Party of America. However, Hinckley's interest in violence was off-putting even to Nazis. He insisted to his new friends that they needed to do something more dramatic than holding a rally. They needed to punctuate their points with bullets. Once again, he expressed that murder was the best solution for the world's problems. Wary of his erratic behavior, the American Nazis formally expelled Hinckley after his 20-month enrollment for being uncontrollable and destroyed all records of correspondence with him. Despite his expulsion, Hinckley continued to identify with the American Nazis. At Texas Tech, he wrote essays on Mein Kampf and on Auschwitz. He also continued to find himself in isolation. One of his professors recalled that Hinckley seemed lost and frustrated. He mostly sat by himself in class, usually two or three chairs from the other students. But in August 1979, 24-year-old Hinckley took his ideas about violence one step further. He bought three handguns two 22 calibers and one 38 modeled after Travis Bickles in Taxi Driver. Soon after, he purchased explosive ammunition and started practicing at a shooting range. That same year, Hinckley told his family he got a job at a Dallas newspaper and was starting a business with a friend. It meant he was too busy to come home for Christmas. Instead, he'd be going to New York to spend it with his girlfriend, the imaginary Lynn Collins. These, of course, were all lies. The man Hinckley claimed was his business partner was nothing more than an acquaintance. No partnership or business ever existed. Hinckley also didn't go to New York that Christmas. Instead, he spent the holiday alone in Lubbock, Texas, surrounded by Burger King wrappers. Perhaps it was this lonely Christmas that pushed Hinckley to make a change. In early 1980, 24-year-old Hinckley admitted to his parents that he was depressed. And despite his father's hesitation, he decided to move back in with them in Colorado. 
After a failed suicide attempt by overdose, it became clear to his parents that their son's mental health issues were more than a passing phase. So Hinckley finally received psychiatric treatment. As part of that treatment, Hinckley was prescribed two antidepressants, Valium and Sermontil. Hinckley's family questioned whether he should be placed in a mental facility, but his psychiatrist, Dr. John Hopper, advised against it. Instead, the doctor identified Hinckley's problems as a simple lack of maturity and a need for boundaries. He advised that his parents cut him off financially once and for all. They allowed him to stay in their Colorado house for now. So Hinckley simply slipped through the cracks. Now, without anything to tether him to his family's expectations, Hinckley was ready to make drastic moves. In May of 1980, 25-year-old Hinckley read an interview in People magazine with Jodie Foster. She said that she was taking a hiatus from Hollywood and enrolling in Yale University. At long last, Hinckley saw his chance to meet the woman of his obsession. He was going to follow her to college. In September of 1980, after so many years in and out of school, Hinckley was one semester away from finally graduating from Texas Tech. But instead, he cleaned out his bank account and dropped out for good. The whole course of his life had now changed. From that point forward, he decided, he would dedicate himself entirely to Jodie Foster. In October of 1980, Hinckley attempted what was likely the first incarnation of his presidential assassination plot. He flew to Nashville on the day of President Carter's visit to the Grand Ole Opry. But while boarding his plane, he was apprehended, attempting to smuggle on three guns, 50 rounds of ammunition, and a pair of handcuffs. Everything was confiscated, and Hinckley was brought up on concealed weapons charges. However, he wasn't deemed a threat. Instead, he simply paid $800 for cash bail and court costs and was let go without being fingerprinted or questioned by anyone in federal law enforcement. When Detective Eddie Myers learned about this close call, he was shocked. Why didn't the FBI detain Hinckley when they found him carrying weapons on a plane? How did John Hinckley Jr. once again slip through the cracks? Instead, Hinckley continued on his way, intent on carrying out his original and most important plan, to be as close to Jodie Foster as possible. A day later, Hinckley registered at the Colony Inn in New Haven, Connecticut, near Yale. He told his family he was enrolled in a writing class at Yale and also told many locals in New Haven, particularly the bartender at the Sheraton Park Plaza Hotel, that Foster was his girlfriend. Hinckley even kept newspaper and magazine pictures of her in his wallet to help sell the myth although no one believed him. Eventually, Hinckley found Foster's dormitory address at Welch Hall. 
he started hand-delivering letters, poems, and notes under her door and in her mailbox. When he discovered her dorm phone number, he began calling her, recording their conversations. In one conversation, Hinckley told her he saw her on campus and remembered fondly what she was wearing. He described vividly and with affection her greenish-greenish-greenish-brown pants. Foster claimed not to remember what she had on as she struggled to get off the phone. Hinckley begged her to keep talking as she hung up. Another time he called her around midnight, her friends giggling in the background. Foster exclaimed, Oh no, not you again. She tried to firmly explain to Hinckley that she didn't want to speak to him, she didn't know him, and it's dangerous and it's not fair and it's rude for him to keep calling. Hinckley simply responded, Well, I'm not dangerous, I promise you that. Although these conversations were unsettling, Foster didn't think they were worth reporting to the authorities. She told detectives that, at the time, she was receiving around 3,000 unsolicited letters a month from fans, but mostly just ignored them. She explained that she was in her first year at college and just trying to have fun with her friends and blend in like any other freshman. Hinckley's relentless messages were a threat to that, so she simply blocked them out. On New Year's Eve of 1980, Hinckley recorded himself speaking about Foster. He said, I still think about Jody all the time. That's all I think about, really. That and John Lennon's death, they're sort of bound together. He continued, I hate New Haven with a mortal passion. I've been up there many times, not stalking her, really, but just looking after her. I was going to take her away for a while there, but... I don't know. I'm so sick I can't even do that. It'll be total suicide city. I mean, I couldn't care less. Jody is the only thing that matters now. Anything I might do in 1981 would be solely for Jody Foster's sake. My obsession is Jody Foster. But for all his self-awareness, there was also clear delusion. Hinckley was becoming desperate he was going to have to do something more drastic to gain the respect and love he so desired from Foster. He knew how Travis Bickle impressed Iris in Taxi Driver, and since it was easy to copy what Bickle bought and wore, why not copy his behavior, too? After all his years talking about the cure of violence, Hinckley decided it was time to finally murder someone. Coming up, Hinckley makes his move on President Reagan. Now, back to the story. As 35-year-old D.C. detective Eddie Myers questioned John Hinckley Jr. on March 30, 1981, he slowly uncovered just how isolated the 25-year-old was. His only interest was in the young actress Jodie Foster, who had recently starred in his favorite movie, Taxi Driver. Hinckley repeatedly traveled to the Yale campus to stalk her. 
Hinckley idolized Robert De Niro's character, Travis Bickle, and felt he could do what Travis did to gain Foster's attention. But so far, his earnest attempts, from phone call to poetry, had all failed. Now, in order to impress her, he needed to do something drastic. In Taxi Driver, Travis Bickle stalked and almost killed a political figure. In real life, President Ronald Reagan had been inaugurated just a couple of months earlier. The connection seemed obvious, almost too perfect. Hinckley had his target. Hinckley wrote another note to Jodie Foster on a postcard of Reagan's inauguration. It read, One day you and I will occupy the White House and the peasants will drool with envy. It was an absurd statement, yet just a small warning of the strange events that were about to occur. At the same time Reagan was moving into the White House, Hinckley's parents were employing the tough love strategy his psychiatrist had recommended. They refused to let him stay at their home in Colorado any longer. Suddenly, Hinckley found himself cast out by the only ties to reality left in his life. Before he left Colorado for the last time, Hinckley gave up his two most prized possessions, a guitar and a typewriter, in exchange for $50 at a pawn shop. The clerk later recalled to police that Hinckley looked like any bum off the street, but also weird and scary. Hinckley once again traveled to New Haven and tried desperately one more time to get Foster's attention. He left a note under her door which read, Jody, goodbye. I love you six trillion times. Don't you maybe like me a little bit? You must admit it. I am different. It would make all the difference. John Hinckley. But Foster never replied. So it was time to get down to business. He had to do something drastic to gain Foster's love and respect, just as Travis Bickle had taught him. Hinckley had practically memorized Taxi Driver, the ritualistic handling of guns, the longing for recognition and companionship, the loneliness, the celebrated vigilante. In a frightening way, Hinckley's life had started to imitate art. And so Hinckley traveled to Washington, D.C., President Reagan's new home. But he didn't know exactly what his plan was, so first, he played tourist, taking a trip to the White House, hoping to catch a glimpse of the new president. When he didn't, he posed for a gloomy photograph outside instead. On the gray, rainy morning of March 30, 1981, Hinckley woke up early after a fitful night of sleep. He told detectives it was probably 7 or 8 a.m., when he decided to walk across the street to order an Egg McMuffin and contemplate his day. At this point, Hinckley was considering several options, traveling to New Haven, where he might kill himself, stay in Washington and try to kill Senator Edward Kennedy, or try to get a shot at the president. The Washington Star made the choice for him. He bought a copy of the paper, 
and found details of President Reagan's speaking engagement schedule in D.C. He decided to go to the Washington Hilton Hotel, where the president was addressing the AFL-CIO, and then he would shoot him. Knowing things might not go his way, he decided to compose one final note to Jodie Foster. At 12.45 p.m., less than two hours before his attempt on Reagan's life, he wrote, Dear Jody, there is a definite possibility that I will be killed in my attempt to get Reagan. It is for this very reason that I am writing you this letter now. As you well know by now, I love you very much. I just cannot wait any longer to impress you. I've got to do something now to make you understand, in no uncertain terms, that I am doing all of this for your sake. By sacrificing my freedom and possibly my life, I hope to change your mind about me. I'm asking you to please look into your heart and at least give me the chance, with this historical deed, to gain your respect and love. I love you forever. John Hinckley. Hinckley then sealed the letter, but did not mail it. Instead, the police found it among his possessions when he was arrested. They also discovered a variety of pills, a 1981 John Lennon calendar, a copy of Romeo and Juliet, a full box of bullets, a postcard with a picture of Ronald and Nancy Reagan on one side, and a note to Jodie Foster on the other side asking, You are a virgin, aren't you? And, of course, a copy of Taxi Driver. All of the elements added up to a picture of an obsessed man who viewed himself as a vigilante. After penning his letter to Foster, Hinckley then hopped in a taxi and headed to the Washington Hilton. Hinckley claimed that the president waved at him in the crowd as he arrived and walked inside. Hinckley waved back. He then nervously waited in the lobby of the Hilton for a few moments. He told Detective Eddie Myers, It was raining, and I wasn't going to stand around in the rain. He decided to move to the roped-off area where the press had congregated. Where he stood was less than 15 feet away from where Reagan would soon appear. At 2.25 p.m., Reagan exited the building after his speech, accompanied by Press Secretary James Brady, Secret Service Agent Timothy McCarthy, and local D.C. police officer Thomas Delahanty. Approximately 285 bystanders watched on including dozens of reporters who were recording the event. As Reagan started to walk towards his limo, Hinckley made his move. John Hinckley Jr. emptied all six shots from his weapon. Chaos ensued. People screamed, shoving each other and running from an unseen assailant. At the time, it was unclear where the shots had come from, or that the shooter was standing just a few feet away among the press pool. So the cameras continued to roll, capturing the terror, the panic, and the blood. Press Secretary Brady first took a bullet to the brain above his left eye. 
Officer Delahanty was then shot in the neck as he turned to protect Reagan. The third bullet was a miss, and the fourth hit Secret Service agent McCarthy in the stomach as he leapt in front of the president, blocking him from the shot. The fifth bullet was also a miss, but the final, sixth shot hit the limousine, ricocheted off the rear fender, and entered the president's body in his left armpit, ultimately lodging into his lung. Secret Service agent Jerry Parr acted quickly, hurrying the president inside of the limo and then covering him with his own body. He ordered the driver to peel off. Normally in an emergency, the protocol is to return to the White House, and initially no one had observed the president was shot. But when Parr noticed blood on the president's lips, he made a life-saving decision to direct the driver to George Washington University Hospital. President Ronald Reagan arrived 10 minutes after the shooting. His final words to doctors before entering surgery were, please tell me you're Republicans. Reagan, as we know, made a speedy recovery. Hinckley's mission to seek Jodie Foster's affection through presidential assassination, however, had failed. While Reagan was being sped to the hospital, Hinckley was immediately tackled to the ground by a combination of police, Secret Service agents, and bystanders. He was then arrested and shoved into a D.C. Metropolitan Police Department cruiser. Once he arrived at police headquarters, Hinckley was processed and advised of his rights before heading upstairs to the homicide squad, where he met Detective Eddie Myers. For hours, Myers questioned the stoic and awkward Hinckley, gathering as much information as the young man would reveal. But soon enough, the suspect was out of his hands and passed to the FBI. Thanks to the inundation of news cameras on the scene, the entire world witnessed the crime and the man who committed it. But of all the hundreds of thousands of people who had seen the shooting, Hinckley only cared about one. Just seven hours after the attack, during his interrogation by the FBI, Hinckley asked Secret Service agent Steve Colo and FBI agent George Schimmel whether the crime had been taped by television crews. Schimmel told Hinckley it was. Hinckley suddenly perked up. He then asked if the footage would be seen during the Academy Awards airing later that night. Both agents could tell he was hopeful that it would. Hinckley explained that he had a kind of a one-sided relationship with Jodie Foster. It soon became clear that Hinckley cared more about his TV coverage, and specifically if Foster had seen it, than the harm he had caused. It was baffling to them, just as Hinckley's stoicism had been to Detective Myers. If the young actress was the catalyst for the crime, investigators needed to speak with her right away. Foster was very shocked, very frightened, and very distressed by the news of the shooting. When asked if she had made the connection between the man who sent her love poems and the man who tried to kill the president, she replied, How many Hinckleys do you know? Everything was starting to come together for Detective Eddie Myers. Hinckley wasn't crazy. 
He knew exactly what he was doing. He was just a spoiled brat trying to impress a girl. Still, when Hinckley was charged on August 24, 1981, in a 13-count indictment for the attempted assassination of the president, he entered a plea of not guilty by reason of insanity. Myers didn't buy it. He said, I've dealt with mentally ill patients. There was nothing that jumped out at me that this guy's mentally ill. But would the jury agree? Thanks for listening to Not Guilty. We'll be back next Thursday with the trial of John Hinckley Jr. and the defense that changed the way courts understand mental illness. You can find more episodes of Not Guilty and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Not Guilty, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Not Guilty on Spotify, just open the app and type Not Guilty in the search bar. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. In the meantime, based on the evidence presented, decide for yourself. Was John Hinckley Jr. genuinely struggling with mental illness? Or was he just an angry kid who let his ego get out of control? And will the jury agree with you? Find out next week. Not Guilty was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Paul Liebeskind. This episode of Not Guilty was written by Allison Morgan, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Vanessa Richardson.